Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullett. Alexa, what's new with you? Um, thanks for asking, Yoel. Uh, one thing that's new with me is that, so I think I mentioned in our last podcast that it's been basically 100 degrees every day here and quite humid. Um, so I went to the university pool, which has a water slide. Um, I'm not sure if you've been on a water slide as an adult, but... They're amazing. It was so fun. Um, so far, I haven't had the like guts to just like go on the water slide on my own. Like I've been, I've been like going with my friend's kid and like pretending as though he has insisted that I go with him. Um, but yeah. So I have not gone on a water slide as an adult. I'm prepared to believe that I'm totally missing out. Um, Ayla, have you been on a water slide recently? I can't remember the last time I've been on a water slide. So basically, Alexa is doing the right thing, and we're both doing the wrong. Thing, I know. I think. <laughs> I'm going to go seek out a water slide, but you do need a child, I feel like, to really, at least in the beginning, like I can't go to a, <laughs> like I'm imagining like a children's playground and I just show up by myself and start going on the water slide. That's like not okay. I went to a Chuck E. Cheese with my lab once and it felt uncomfortable. Like it was just a group of adults, you know? <laughs> right. We're just going to be hanging out here. Why did you go to a Chuck E. Cheese with a group of adults? I think I thought it would be more fun than it was. I thought it would be like an arcade or something like that. But um, it's definitely targeted at young children. There was one game that was really fun where it was like, um, it was like a like a first person shooter sort of like video game. But rather than like having, uh, uh, I guess, like a controller gun, you had a thing that shot pinballs or pinballs, um, ping pong balls, um, at like a screen. And so it was like, uh, a combination of like an actual physical, um, thing being shot. And then the video game, that was fun. I would totally play that. Um, I have really positive memories of Chuck E. Cheese from being a kid. And obviously those are somewhat untrustworthy because when I was last at a Chuck E. Cheese, I was a kid. So is that what happened to you? Like you went as a child, you're like, this is great. And then you go back as an adult, you're like, oh, this is actually really terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard for me to predict. Like water slides were really fun. Chuck E. Cheese was really lame. I went to a trampoline park once. It was really fun. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Trampoline parks are the best. That's true. I feel like you just got to go through one by one and rediscover whether things are actually fun or not. (laughs) Okay. So I should do introductions. Um, So we have a guest today. Um, Our guest is Ayla. And I think she may be our first and only guest with only one name, which has been um, a goal of mine, you know, since we started this podcast. So that's that's great. Um, she is a freelance social scientist, uh, a Twitter micro celebrity, and an all around interesting person. I'll just give a quick bio, which um, I pulled mainly from her webpage. Uh, so Ayla was homeschooled by evangelical fundamentalist Christians in Idaho. She left home, lost her faith, dropped out of college, and quote, turned to a series of shitty jobs involving windowless factories and waking up at 4 a.m. She eventually escaped from factory work into the warm and much more lucrative embrace of porn, where she became one of the top earners on the DIY porn site OnlyFans until she got bored of that and decided to start doing other things. Uh, What are those other things? She's now living in Austin and working on a funded research project about sexual fetishes. She's also run what I would call social science studies, although I don't know whether she thinks of them that way, on a number of other topics, including perceptions 
of Racism and Sexual Consent. She's active on Twitter, uh, where you can find her at Ayla underscore girl, and blogs at her website, knowingless.com. Ayla, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. That was a fantastic summary introduction. I'll have to remember that next time somebody asks me to introduce myself. So um, this show entails us drinking beer. I I notice you have a giant jug of something, um, which I hope is (laughs) non-alcoholic. It is water. Should I get a beer? Yes, you should get a beer right now. (laughs) Wait, okay. So I don't have a beer. I'd have to like actually make a cocktail, really. You should, you sh- yeah, absolutely. Whatever you got to do, we'll, we'll hold on right here while you make yourself a drink. Okay. Okay. Give me one second. Okay. In the meantime, um, Alexa, what are you drinking? Um, I am drinking a beer called Rollin' in the Haze, which is a New England style IPA. Um, and it's made by Back 40, uh, which comes from Gadsden, Alabama. Wow. That is a great beer name. Yeah, I like that beer name. I really yeah. dislike the can. It's like sort of like hippie tie-dye. Oh, it's sort of tie-dye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of lame. Have it's you had the beer before, though? No, I haven't. So this is exciting. Do you want to crack it open and tell us how it is? Sure. Um, it has a picture of a chili pepper and a steak on it. So I guess I should be... <laughs> My two favorite things. <laughs> Meat-flavored beer. It, yeah, I don't know if it tastes like chili pepper and steak <laughs> right. or... Right. Maybe it's just hearty the way a steak is. Pairing suggestions, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. All right. Okay. Well, um, I, okay, I'm I'm ready. I'm anxiously awaiting. It's um very easy drinking, hazy IPA. Refreshing, citrusy. I guess from the can, that makes sense. All right, Ayla, thanks for uh uh playing along here. What did you make yourself? I'm not sure. It's it's got a name, but I always get the name mixed up with other names. It's got uh whiskey. A little bit of sugar and orange stuff in it. I guess I would call that an old-fashioned. Something like that. Alexa? That sounds right. Pretty close, right? I guess the only thing that's missing is like bitters. Well, the orange is the bitters. Orange bitters, yeah. Oh, okay. Perfect. Totally an old-fashioned. I have a Vagabond Joie de Vivre uh, Session IPA. It says here that it's for optimists, um, and I felt that I needed that today, but um, it's just okay, actually. (laughs) Sadly. I was gonna say, are you feeling optimistic or are you feeling like you need to be made into an optimist? I was I, I needed more optimism in my life. Is yeah. Yeah. It's I I would say the beer is moderately effective. I've actually started I started drinking earlier, which is sort of unusual for me, but I just felt like I don't know, it's that kind of day where it's like five forty five. I really want to be drinking a beer. You know? Yeah, I understand. Yeah. So I feel this is important because we've been taking a lot of shit on Twitter for not drinking quote unquote real beers. I don't know if you've been following. <laughs> no, I haven't seen this at all. David Chapman was giving us a hard time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Mickey last time was drinking basically an alcoholic orange juice and David rightfully, <laughs> rightfully complained about that. But then we were somehow swept into this as well, which I find is unfair. Yeah. I mean, I've only ever drunk really legitimate um, high alcohol beers on the show. You should write David Chapman a sternly worded direct message. Be like, look, man, you're right about Yoel and Mickey. They fucking yeah. suck, but I'm legit. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, so there's a ton of stuff that I want to ask you about, uh, Ayla, and I don't want to keep you all night. So I'll I'll just get started. Um, so I will say the way that I found out about you, actually, is that Paul Bloom retweeted one of your Twitter polls. Um, and I was like, oh, this is a really cool question. I forget which one it was exactly. Um, but I started following you after that. And 
noticed that you do a ton of these polls. So I would say like close to one a day. Um, and they sort of run the gamut from um, things that are sort of mundane to things that are just a bit weird or whimsical. Like, for example, have you ever put things in your butt? Yes or no? Um, to controversial, where the most controversial, uh, according to the spreadsheet that you have, is would you support the use of realistic child sex dolls uh, for pedophiles? Um, to things that I would call kind of classic uh, judgment decision-making or uh, economic topics like risk aversion. So you ask people, divide it up by men and women, would you rather get a sure $1,000 or a 50-50 chance at uh, $10,000? So it's kind of a way of measuring people's risk preferences. So basically, these are all over the map. Um, and I guess I'm curious about, A, what you made you start doing them? Um, and then also how you choose your questions. Like, are there topics that you're really interested in that you keep coming back to? Um, are there certain things that you've learned to stay away from because either you get yelled at or the answers are uninteresting? Like, what does that process look like? Uh, so, yeah, I agree. Twitter polls are fantastic. I've been doing Twitter polls since I think they came out with the poll option, I think in 2015 or something, and really started doing them regularly, I think, in 2016. Uh, but it was like sort of a no-brainer for me. At this point, I had like maybe around 15,000 Twitter followers or something, which is enough for like a cool sample size. And so as you know, if you just have the ability to ask any question to a massive group of people and like instantly get the answers, would you not do this all the time? I feel like the, the bigger question is like, why is everybody not doing it? Like if you have over a certain amount of Twitter followers, it's very confusing to me that this isn't just like a default way of interacting. Uh, like anything could be a question. Like I'm having a conversation with somebody and they're like, Oh, I wonder what people think of this, but ah, we can, we can phrase it correctly and tweet it and we'll find out. Uh, and it's, it's also like really fun too. I like, I enjoy you know, like kind of trollish Twitter questions that are like really creative or make people uncomfortable, like, like questions about poop or something. And then also like the controversial ones are really nice. I especially like questions that, um, like force people to sort of like confront something about their worldview that might be inconsistent. Uh, or like really tease out the edges of their worldview, like, uh, like, and the implications of that. Like one of my favorite ones is, uh, it's like a, the two part question. Cause I do, I do Twitter polls where I include two questions in the tweet and then there's like, uh, four options and then two per two. So you can kind of see a correlation. And one of them is like, is bestiality wrong? And are you a vegan? Is like one example of what I enjoy a lot. Um, but yeah, they're, they're my favorite thing ever. What are the bestiality re vegan results? Uh, I can look it up. I uh, gotta find it. I mean, I'd be curious. First of all, like, just uh, what's the base rate among your followers of vegan? Which I I don't know what my intuition is there. Blow? I guess there's just not a lot of vegans, right? I'm looking up this. This okay? Uh, yeah, here we go. We have a total of uh, it was a surprisingly high amount of vegans. Oh wait, no. I'm looking. It, it glitched on me that I was looking at the wrong question. Sorry for this to interrupt your podcast flow. <laughs> edit this part out. No, this is this is great. This is the sort of this is the sort of podcasting that our listeners come for. The awkward, like, wait, hold on, let me control F and wait for my browser to load this. It's a big spreadsheet, so it takes a while. Yeah, let, let me just like look through this. Let me just real quick <laughs> run these analyses for you. I'll have an answer for you in a minute and thirty seconds. Okay, we had is, is bestiality wrong due to the inability of animals to consent, and are you a vegan? Um, we had a total of, oh, okay, only so 8% were vegans. And and is it the case that the vegans are more likely to say it, bestiality is wrong because animals can't consent? 
so squinting at it, it appears that among vegans, we have slightly less than a third say that it is not wrong. And among non-vegans, it appears to be slightly less than a half say it is not wrong. Okay. 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 So, right. So more vegans think it's wrong. So that makes it, wow. So I'm now I'm surprised by the non-vegans being yeah. so okay with bestiality. Me too, actually. Yeah, one possibility is like, well, I don't think it's wrong because of the animal consent thing. I think it's wrong for some other reason, right? So assuming that they're actually following the instructions of the question, you might say, you, you might say no to it's wrong because of consent, even if you believe it is wrong because... I don't know what's gross. Like, what's the other reason to be against bestiality? Um, maybe it's just like it causes them pain or something, and suffering is bad, like regardless of if being consents to it. That seems a little strange, but I don't know. Yeah, so do you, I, I alluded to um, that you have a big spreadsheet of these. So you have every poll question you ever asked? Uh, yes, up until a certain point. Like, um, I think I got a, a friend to help me scrape it, and then the scraping ends, I think. Uh, maybe six months ago or something. So the the recent aren't in there, but uh, since 2016, the rest should be there. Yeah. So yeah, you all mentioned before that um, your most controversial is this um, this child sex dolls um, question. So do you track your own? Like, are you doing research on your own polls? Like, do you do meta science where you like in in some way like assess which polls are more controversial than others? I mean, it depends on what you want to call science. Like. If you ask me what tends to be more controversial, I could tell you based on like looking at it sorted by the controversy score. Um, but I don't have like an analysis of like keywords that appear more frequently or something. Wait, I don't know what a controversy score is. Uh, in my spreadsheet, I have it. You can sort by controversy score, which is like basically quote tweets divided by likes, which is like roughly a, a indication of like how much people like didn't like the tweet uh, and wanted to yell about it. So this actually, I noticed this controversy index, which I think is really clever. Um, and I have been for a while thinking about what would make Twitter less annoying. And I don't know if I advocated for this last time when we recorded the last episode, but I was like, they should just get rid of quote tweets <laughs> because it seems like 90% of quote tweets are like, look at this asshole. Yeah. Right? I wish you could disable quote tweets on your own tweet. Like if a tweet's starting to like pop off, you just click the disable button. Yeah. That is definitely something they should add. Alexa, what do you think? Um, I don't know. Uh, it feels like quote t- tweets could serve like a a useful function. Like, do is it ever like important that people be um, like dragged across the coals for their tweet? Uh, you know, I'm sure there are cases where that's true. I just feel like those cases are outnumbered by the much larger number of cases <laughs> <laughs> where it's not warranted <laughs> and where it just makes life unpleasant for everybody. I mean, I feel like it just like more so than like the individual cases where it's like did or didn't somebody deserve to be uh, yelled at for something. It just builds, I feel like, a conversational dynamic where that's what people are constantly doing. Like that is just how some people interact with Twitter is constantly quote tweeting people that they think suck and saying, look how this person sucks. It's also a perverse incentive, right? Because like. Often when I get a controversial tweet that gets quote tweeted, you know, a bunch of times, I also get followers from that. And I don't like the thing that does to me psychologically, because like I've noticed over time, I started optimizing for like larger quote tweets. So I had to like really consciously fight that. It's kind of built into the system. So like you, you noticed that posting more controversial things or things that would like rile people up more also got you more followers? 
Yeah, very much. It's just like sheer exposure. So it's like you, if people like catapult you to the farms of the internet, you know, maybe 99% of what you get is hate, but like 1% is people who like it or want to hate follow you. And then your follower count goes, goes up. Uh-huh. Right. And I appreciate it. I saw on your website that you sort of admit to caring about gaining followers and being widely liked. So I, I appreciated your honesty. In that. But, um, do you think that the, uh, the quote tweeters ever have a point? Like, do you think that their um, criticisms are fair ever? I mean, ever? Yes. Like I wouldn't go so far to say that there's none. Uh, but definitely I would say it's like lower degree. Most people that don't like me online, I think like don't fully understand my positions or misrepresented or like are responding to some sort of nearby uh, framework that I don't actually adhere to. So usually when quote tweets happen, I'm like, uh, well, you're, that's a good criticism of something that I don't believe. And that's a little bit frustrating. Yeah. It seems like a great medium for talking to people that you have like a common set of assumptions and background beliefs with. Um, and like psych Twitter, psychology Twitter, I think can be like that, right? It's like, kind of a smallish group of people that are all kind of coming from the same place, kind of all have the same references that they know um, and often know each other in person. Um, but when you get people interacting who don't have those things in common, it just seems like the modal outcome is this person sucks. And I feel like you see this all the time and things that happen to go viral where somebody's posting for their friends um, and saying something that makes sense within that community. And then you take it out of that context and you're like, oh, this person's such a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that, right. That, like, the, the, that seems to be like half of what happens on Twitter. Oh, yeah. One of, one of my questions that got me the most hate was asking if, uh, like, one, are you autistic? And two, if you like press the magic button, no person with autism is ever born again. Although existing people are left unchanged. And this was part of a thread where I was asking about a whole bunch of different types of, things like as schizophrenia like autism like being gay being trans like are you this and do you think and so we can see the difference between like people who are the thing versus like people who aren't like how valuable they found it um which was really cool uh but then that specific tweet got retweeted into like autism activist twitter and they they took it as me like specifically attacking autists which is funny because i am probably autistic i was like guys (laughs) guys come on yeah. So, right. That's a great example, right? Because like out of context, it's like you want to eliminate autistic people. Like it's almost this like genocidal thing where you're like, wouldn't it be great if we could kill all autistic people? Um, and do you, did you then engage and try to explain and like, no, you're taking it out of context. And in fact, I myself, et cetera, et cetera. Or, or are you just like, oh, fuck it at this point. Battle is lost. <laughs> Yeah, I think like my off oh, fuck it is like more recent. I just like have stopped kind of. But at the time this happened, I think I, I cared more and I was like trying to explain. But people don't really care, right? Like, like even if you have an excellent justification for it, if you don't like signal correctly according to your tribal values, like they find some sort of reason to make you bad. Like like the the, the, the conclusion is that you must have failed in some way and they're going to like sort of construct a worldview in which that makes sense. And so that's what I found there. Like it didn't matter. Like like the, the the my arguments had had no effect whatsoever on their responses. Wait, can you say more about signaling correctly according to your tribal values? So like, um, like you have like certain things that designate you being like in group in your tribe, or like you know have a sense of belonging 
among the people. And usually this is like with religion, this is very clear because like you have a set of precepts and like, you know, the clothes you wear or something, but like just lesser degree, this is common with like ideologies. As I'm sure you're aware, this is like not particularly new, but like with the autism people, for example, like there's, there's this whole war being fought, right. And your, like, your inclusion in the autism activation uh, activist is that you must like be very contrary to anybody who challenges this. Like there's not much room for nuance. And so, like, the, the purpose of, like, arguing about this, like, isn't actually to, to find a truth or something. Like, you're not, like, working with somebody in order to figure out, like, the nuances of what you both believe. Like, the purpose of it is to, like, demonstrate loyalty to your tribe. And so, like, the conclusion is already determined at that point. Right, right. Do you, if you had, um, would you have posted the question about autism in isolation? Yes, I think so. Like, like if you asked me to or something, I like I'd be like, oh, that seems like an interesting question. Like, uh, but then I probably would have followed it up with a lot more because, like, I don't think I would have done it just be like for any other reason or something. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. I was just gonna say, like, the format of of asking polls is kind of interesting to me because, um, it feels like you often you sort of always have the defense of like I'm just asking a question. You know, I'm not giving the answer to the question. Um. But I guess, um, do you, are there questions that you avoid because you think that asking them is inherently problematic? I mean, asking a question sort of implies like, I don't know, I guess like you could have, you could say yes to this question and that's something that I'm going to publicize on my blog or whatever. I don't think there's any inherently problematic question at all. I think I feel like quite strongly about this. It feels like sort of some deep value to me. There are some questions I won't publish because like the controversy it would like generate is like not worth the benefit of the question. Like I'm not actually that interested in the question. Like I could construct like the optimally controversial question that would get me canceled, but I don't really have a desire to do that. Uh, all of the questions that I ask have some sort of value to me. Like I, I'm actually genuinely curious in the responses. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some things where you're like, well, the question I don't know. It's not particularly useful, I guess, in addition to being offensive. Like, so I'm Jewish. And if you're like, you know, Holocaust, good idea. Like, I mean, at that point, I'm just like, well, anybody who would ask that would just be trolling, right? right. Like that, I guess that's the assumption. Although, would you want to know the amount of people who would say yes to that question? Is the thing, like, I kind of am curious, like, I wonder what percentage of my followers are like terrible racists in that regard. Right. No, I actually would want to know that. Yeah. Like you could be curious about who would say yes to that question or think that that it's an important piece of information to know, yeah, how many people agree. But I don't, I still think that there's, um, you, I think you can make an inferences about the person who posts that question that aren't totally, um, that in that case could be like pretty malicious. Um, that wouldn't be unfair. I can think of lots of questions that, yeah, I think that you and I differ uh, Ayla in term in terms of like thinking that all questions are um or there what did, what word exactly did we say like there's there's no questions that would be um like inappropriate or something problematic problematic problematic, problematic yeah. is not the best word either the, the question is something like like a question itself in isolation independent of the person is is just like an inquiry and it seems like good to like have that inquiry to yourself like it seems like everybody should in fact check the questions that they think are obvious like we should in fact ask each ourselves actively like was the holocaust a good idea and i assume almost all of us will come to the conclusion no but it should be like an active engagement right 
And and that feels like really important to me. I agree that there are people for whom they ask a question and this is like loaded. They're trying to like get you to change your mind in a way that like you don't want to. But I also feel like questions we should like play fair. Like there are questions that I ask occasionally uh, on my Twitter where I feel like I'm trying to get people to come to a conclusion. But I also feel like this is okay as long as I like honor the rules of engagement or something. As long as I'm doing this, willing to change my mind, if I'm willing to like answer like a question that somebody asks me, honestly, even if it feels like it is like challenging something that I believe, uh, then I'm okay with it. Like as long as you both equally respect and play on like equal footing, uh, then it seems good. Like if that which can be killed by a question should be like, if your beliefs can be challenged, then that's what we want. Even if it's like really horrifying or disgusting. So we've, I guess touched on this already a little bit, but you're, you know, sort of Twitter famous. Um, so you have like something around a hundred thousand followers, I think. Um, and sometimes mm-hmm. that means you, you know, something of yours blows up and you get yelled at a lot. Like people were very mad about um, child sex dolls for pedophiles. And, is that something that you that stresses you out that you take seriously? Do you feel like the weight of this audience, like imagined audience, whenever you're posting something? Are you ever like, fuck it, I'm just gonna quit? Like this isn't worth it? Like I'm curious how how you think about that. Dude, no, being Twitter fans is a great. I highly recommend it. Uh it's like absolutely worth all of the, the shit that you get from it. Uh I, I also don't mind most of the controversy because I feel kind of like clearly good in myself about almost everything that I tweet. Like if I tweet a poll and people get mad at it, I'm like, guys, like I am fully aware in myself that this is like a question that I think is valuable and came from a place that isn't like, it isn't wishing harm on anybody. And so I'm like, I feel like I have the mental fortitude to withstand a quite a bit of criticism as long as I have that. It can get hard when criticism comes from close to me. Like I'm pretty sensitive about my polls if it's getting, like if I'm having a controversial poll and then somebody who's close to me is like, you shouldn't have tweeted that. That is like really hard for me. And then I get like a huge amount of self-doubt. It's like knocking out a leg of a table. Uh, but that is pretty rare that that happens. Do you have a group of people that you talk to that sort of share these values? I I mean, we've been talking about how like your social groups or your social communities are are so important in um, shaping what you think, I guess, and kind of creating these presumptions about what's fair game and what isn't. So are there these folks who are like, yeah, any question is inbound and that's totally legit? Oh yeah. It, among my like personal friend group, you can ask anything, anything at all. And it will be like seriously and earnestly discussed, which is fucking fantastic. And I really value it about them. I think that I uh, am much more likely to go public with it. Like most of my friends would not tweet most of, uh, or many of the more controversial things that I do, um, which is reasonable, right? Like I, I have uh, the practical affordance to, to be able to take social risks in this way in my life. Like I'm like financially independent of this sort of thing. Like I'm my own boss uh, and I have like a stable social group that supports me. So I get to do these things. I have the privilege of that. Uh, whereas my friends don't. Yeah. I, I think it's overlooked sometimes that it's tough to get canceled by the out group. Yeah. Like usually what's really threatening is like when it's the people on your side Right, who start to say that you suck, and sure, there's there's situations in which people get fired. Like I don't know if you guys heard about Bodega Bro, um, this guy who made some like dumb TikTok video criticizing New York City bodegas, and then somebody complained to his employer, and they just fired him. 
They're like, he had just started there. And they were, you know, I mean, it's like a corporation and they're going to be risk averse. And they're like, ah, oh, it seems like these guys making waves out. Right. So that's kind of a case in which kind of unusually it can just be some random, but usually particularly, I think for the folks that I know, the worry is that it's going to be other people who we know and respect or the, who are like friends and colleagues know and respect we're going to decide that we suck. And if it's like, you know, in our case, you know, Trumpists who are yelling at us on Twitter, well, who cares, right? Their opinion doesn't matter. It's very strong agree with this. Do you, um, yeah, do you feel like there are, um, so you mentioned that with the question about autism, you felt a little bit like, okay, well, I sort of identify with this group in some way. So, um, so it feels the the criticism from that side of things seems like a little bit unfair or something like that. But are there times when you will tweet a question and a group that you're not a part of is like, Hey, this question is super offensive. Like, so you mentioned that you worry sometimes when people who are close to you, um, tell you, you shouldn't have tweeted something. Um, do you ever get that from like a group that you aren't a part of and you're like, Oh shit, maybe I don't understand their perspective on this. I don't think I ever have this reaction. I think I, uh, like there's something like as the thing that is important to me is like maintaining compassion. As long as like, there's some part of me that really actually feels connected to the other person, like imagines what it's like to be them, like going through like the same challenges and trials. And, and I might not be able to do it perfectly like at all, but there's, but like, as long as there's a part that's like looking for that or like sort of in connection with this sort of thing, uh, then that feels like it's what matters to me and not the offense. Like I don't give a shit if I offend people. Uh, because I grew up like religious, right? Like lots of people are offended all the time by the things that I do now. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, so it's very important to draw boundaries. Like I'm going to maintain compassion for you. religious people who think that I shouldn't be doing this or offended by what I do or say about religion. Uh, I'm going to like, make sure that I maintain empathy in the way that I communicate, but I'm not going to not say things that I believe or ask questions that I have because of offense. Like your offense is yours. And I, it's not ideal. Like if I could operate my life doing what I can and like change a small thing and like, you're not offended, I would prefer that. Uh, but it's like very important to me to maintain that boundary. Like your offense is yours and my curiosity is mine. And so on Twitter, often when I offend people, I check to see like, am I maintaining this boundary and am I holding compassion? And if I am, then I feel okay offending people. Does that imply that um, what matters is people's intention and not their impact on people. So I could imagine somebody who makes a really racist joke and then somebody is offended by it and they're like, oh, well, it wasn't my intention to offend you. Like in that situation, I would not be sympathetic to the person who made the racist joke at all. I would be like, it's, you know, it's your responsibility to be more considerate. And the fact that you had good intentions is like not really a defense, but you would defend that person in that case. Well, it depends on what we're defending them for, right? Like, uh, I support the, if somebody feels that it's like important to them for purpose of expression to make a racist joke, I support the right to do so. And I also support the right of people who feel offended by this to not engage with them or to communicate their offense or to be like, or, and the desire that they don't want to have to do with it, like cut off contact. Like, I think these are both independent expressions of each other that I both independently support. So if I say something that is like my true expression and I do offend somebody, I absolutely support their right to not engage with me or to not see it or to even criticize me. I think this is very important. Yeah. I mean, I guess what complicates this is that often you see people who want, um, we call it like second order punishment. So not only do I want to ostracize Ayla, if I know that Alexa hangs out with Ayla, then I'm going to go yell at Alexa as well. So I want other people 
to shun the person that I don't like. Um, and I mean, how does that fit into this um, worldview? Is that fine? Am I just expressing my point of view and that other person can take it or leave it? Yeah, I mean, like, it is a little bit of a gray area, right? So if we take, like, the extreme end of the position where somebody is, like, advocating uh, murder, uh, that's, like, a little rougher, right? I would be down with being, like, hey, maybe you shouldn't be friends with somebody who advocates murder. But I think I'm, like, much more tolerant in general uh, uh, than most in this regard. Like, uh, I think that in general, across the board, uh, it is good to, like, not punish people for their beliefs as much as you can, as much as you feel, like, comfortable and safe doing so. Like, I support the right for people to draw social boundaries where they need to. Does, you don't have to have a justification for it. Like, I don't care if the thing that offends you is like incredibly minor and nobody else cares. Like, you should have the right to pick, pick that your feelings are valid and be like, I'm not going to engage with this. Um, and I forgot what I was going to say. Hold on. Well, so second order punishment seems like it causes some complications, right? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I, I mean, this at this point, like, gets into controlling people around you. Like, if you engage with that person, I'm not going to engage with you. And that, like, really fucking sucks. I wish people wouldn't do that uh, quite so much. Um, because like, it makes people like have to draw sides. I don't feel like I have like a really eloquent explaining, like thoughts to have about this though. I just don't like it. I also don't do this to my friends. Like I, I at no point have ever told somebody like, I'm not going to be friends with you if you, uh, interact with that person. Yeah. I find that those cases are the really difficult ones because I, like you feel that it's fine for somebody to say, I don't like so-and-so for whatever reason, I'm going to choose not to interact with them. But often, um, particularly in a professional context, there could be pressure, for example, on a professional society to say, you know, we want you to kick out this person who's expressed these views that we don't like. Right, so this organization ought to take some action to show that don't, they don't approve of this other person's expression. And I don't know if it would be convincing to those folks to say, like, "Well, we're just living, let, let live, and they can say what they want." Right? I mean, Alexa, you've been, you were in charge of SIPs, where like I think some of this was going down. Uh, sorry, I should explain for the listeners: Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science. Don't say anything you shouldn't say. But like, I know there's been th- those sorts of pressures that maybe you can talk about, like in more general terms. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's overly simplistic to say like, oh, um, yeah, like you don't have any responsibility to um, engage with and especially like for uh, for societies and um, and organizations that have some sort of power to like promote people whose like values you respect or something like that. So, um, or really, I think the way to, to phrase it is, um, have a responsibility to, um, I guess like vet those things to some degree. So like I was also, a um, a moderator on psych map. Right. And so psych map provides a platform for people to like have, discussions about psychology and psychology methods and things like that. And, um, being a psych map moderator means that you're, uh, trying to make sure that basically like people don't misuse the platform and start like being really mean to each other and stuff like that. And it's a terrible job being a psych map moderator. I found it really difficult and I don't, I don't know why you volunteered for that. Oh my God. That I, don't really, I don't know. I don't know. It's a terrible job. Um, and like, I find it extremely difficult to know, like when, you know, like, um, you should, 
like address what somebody said and be like, maybe you should try not to say stuff like that and things like that. But just to like, I mean, I guess, I guess this is like the deeper question of, um, free speech and things like that. And I just, I think that we like don't really live in a world that has free speech. So to like fall back on the free speech argument is kind of disingenuous. Like we're constantly, um, giving some people more platforms than others. And so there's like a selection involved. Um, and to like treat it as a free market is like, I think, yeah. Um, disingenuous or. It sounds like there's a couple like different questions sort of all mixed up in that. Like one, there's a question of like, what right do we have to not have someone else make us quiet? And then there's like, what right do we have to have to like a spot on platforms? And like, there's a question of like, to what degree is like, uh, does like free speech, like interact with other speech? Like, is there sort of like a zero sum game here? Like there's a lot of like different, very specific questions and, and there's not like one answer for the cluster. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that, I think that they're very complicated, but I, I think that the, um, I don't think that it's fair to treat it as a free for all basically. Yeah. I mean, as a society, let's say like you do, I think legitimately have an interest in saying we want to include these sorts of people and not these other sorts of people. Right. And that's fine. Like societies get to get to set rules for who they want to come versus not. Um, I think where it gets interesting is when some people say, well, not because of the specific behavior of this person, but of what they represent or what I know about their views and how I've expressed themselves. They've expressed themselves in other ways. Um, I don't want to be in a society with them. And I think that you should, you know, kick them out or not let them come to things or whatever. And I think that for some things, I'm on board with that. Like if somebody's like a white supremacist, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, I don't want to go to a conference with them. And I think it's perfectly fine to kick them out of this society. For a lot of other things, I think I err on more on the side of live and let live. And partly that's because I feel like for us, like having a wide range of ideas is really important. Um, but I can see also that some people are like, well, I, I myself would feel uncomfortable and wouldn't want to come if person X were there, right? So you are, by making that choice, making it less pleasant for those people to come and maybe they won't, right? So there's no choice that's kind of neutral. Like even saying, suck it up and, you know, live and let live is kind of orientation that some people don't share and that those people that may be turned off and decide to go elsewhere, right? Yeah, strong agree. It's like, it's a kind of a question of like collective versus personal responsibility. And I think people sort of natural values that align on that spectrum. Uh, I think I'm like pretty allergic or something to uh, like limitations on free speech, uh, mm-hmm. mainly because of my upbringing, right? Like, uh, from the inside, feeling like someone else should not be allowed to say something feels like I felt this, like I used to be like anti-gay and like pro-life and like protested holdings, like, but it was inside. I know that feeling and it was so righteous and so clear. And I was like, I am doing good by preventing other people from doing this. And so now like when I feel that in myself or like in others, I'm like, you can't like use that sensation to guide you because I've seen it misguide and damage so many people. So it feels like there has to be some sort of like external thing that we default to because like a sense of moral righteousness is not it's it's gonna it's gonna fuck you it's like not trustworthy and so that's why i'm like really cautious about limitations on free speech really really cautious because like it might be good to damage to like suppress people that we consider to be bad but like 
I was, I am now the person that I consider to be bad. And so it's just, I'm really careful. Yeah. I was going to ask about that actually, like, because it seems to me that a lot of the people in our community, I mean, this isn't everybody, but, but lots of folks kind of share a certain background and upbringing where we haven't had to have this sort of like jarring transition from one worldview to a completely different worldview, right? So we grew up maybe in like upper middle class, like left-leaning households, and then we went to college, and then we went to grad school, and now we're professionals. And it's always been kind of in this context where, yeah, there's disagreements about some things, but there's also kind of a shared set of values that like more or less everybody has. And it's very comfortable to be part of a community where there's kind of basic agreement on this stuff. Whereas if you've been in a situation where basically you had this like drastic, I don't know, epistemic shock where like all of a sudden you're like throwing out all the stuff you used to believe and like completely changing your mind, maybe it just gives you a different orientation about being willing to entertain stuff that seems crazy because to previous you, your current self would seem crazy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I wish everybody could have the experience of being like a righteous activist about something and then having all of that taken away and then like becoming like radically the thing that you were protesting against. It is so fucking humbling. Uh, a lot of people have had this experience. Like a lot of people were raised, you know, in, in radical ideologies. Like my, my ideology that I was raised in was like quite radical, like isolated from the outside world, homeschooled, like did not know anybody else who did not think exactly the way we did. Uh, and it was like very fundamentalist conservative, like extraordinarily patriarchal. Uh, I was not, I'm, I was supposed to be a housewife, right? So it was such a, like a little bubble. Uh, and, and like coming out of that, like I can feel in myself all of these things that I used to justify that. And now all of those are in question. I'm like, I can't trust any of this shit. And when I see like other people using those same things to justify even views I agree with, I don't trust it anymore. And like, well, you're believing this thing, not necessarily because like you're doing it for the right reasons, but because like it just happens to be the correct thing that the people around you believe. Like if you had been born into the culture I was born in, you would be like one of the exact same people supporting all of this stuff. Like it's so determined by culture. I, I find myself to be like pretty uh, smart or something, I'm pretty uh, able to be contrary. I'm like exactly the kind of person you would expect to like grow up in a culture like this and figure out that it was wrong, but I didn't. I was the f most fervent advocator of it because of these traits. And and so that's like the exact same thing I'm seeing in, in the outside world too. Can you talk a little more about like what your upbringing was actually like and kind of more interesting to me is like what finally broke that worldview for you? Like, what got you to change your mind? Yeah, I'm like, as I mentioned, pretty conservative. Uh, my dad's a Christian apologist, and my mom's a stay-at-home housewife, and they've been married for- What is an apologist? I'm sorry, I actually literally don't know. It's, it's somebody who defends the Christian faith. So my dad, like, writes books and has a radio show, and, like, it does assistant preaching. It, like, goes around to churches to give guest talks. Um, and th th so I grew up, like, I memorized- 800 verses. We did Bible study every night. Um, it was like incredibly focused. Like our entire life was, you know, witnessing the word of God. Um, and again, very conservative. Like we are explicitly told that women are supposed to be submissive to men. Women are not uh, built to be leaders. Uh, that I was to be grow, I was to grow up, meet a man, marry him, and then like obey him. Uh, so a lot of the practice was to be like submissive. Like I was like, hey, my place is a woman. And it was awful. Like I remember crying myself to sleep at night as a kid. Like, asking God why he hadn't made me be born a boy. Cause I was just so upset with the fact that this was my lot. Like I, I was got to have kids. Like I wasn't able 
I wasn't allowed to have a career or anything. And they're like, well, you can go to college, but it's basically to get a little bit of education so that you can homeschool your children and hopefully meet a man there to marry. Uh, and I, I fully accepted this. This is complete. And is uh, like, I, again, I didn't know anybody for whom this wasn't the case. Everybody I ever met was like this. Uh, homeschool, like did not, we weren't allowed to watch normal television for many years. We weren't allowed to watch any media, which had a child uh, being upset with their parents uh, because this would like create the possibility in our mind that that was a thing that could be done. Uh, there was like physical spankings, like pretty severe. We, we, my parents adhered to a, a program called Growing Kids God's Way, uh, which has been like pulled from books because like it tends to kill babies. Uh, pull, pull from bookshelves. It was, it was really intense, um, basically. And so, what what happened? Like, what changed your mind eventually? Um, I went to college. Uh, I only lasted there briefly, like a couple months because of homeschool and, and finances don't work really well. Uh, but while I was there, it was the first time that I was around people who weren't Christian. Uh, and I think like before when I was in the Christian world, uh, I believed that I was seriously doubting what I believed. Like we fostered an atmosphere of true inquiry. You could ask any question, like we want you to like intellectually understand your faith and not suppress anything. And so I thought that I was doing, I really thought that that's what I was doing. But in hindsight, I think that uh, some part of my mind wasn't allowing me to actually question. Like I, some part of me like, wasn't truly considering that what I was believing was a lie because I had so much at stake. Like my entire life was at stake. Everybody I knew, like my moral foundation, my sense of who I was, my purpose in life, like the thing right and wrong, like my habits, everything rested on that. And when you, when you have your beliefs, like holding up something that massive, like you don't actually have an option of what you can believe like that. I, I did not have the option of not being a Christian, but when I left home and I started to develop a social network that wasn't Christian, uh, suddenly I started to have a little bit more flexibility in the way I could explore my faith. Uh, like it became, I started to have a life that wouldn't end if I questioned Christianity and I think that allowed me for the first time to actually be like, uh-huh, I wonder if this isn't true. And there was like a specific instance where I like had a question that uh, I hadn't heard answered yet by Christianity, which is like very rare because we had sp I'd spent so many years being drilled in the faith. Um, but I heard like a new question that I, that like I didn't understand the answer to. And that like triggered me to be like, what if this isn't real? But like, really, like, what if this isn't real? But like through my body, I felt it. And and at that moment, I realized what I had been doing to believe in Christianity, like the mental effort I had been going to, to like patch all the things together and all the reasonable explanations for the, the apparent contradictions of the Bible and all the debates I'd have. Like I was putting in so much mental effort to make it make sense. And then once I realized that it just fell away and I lost my faith in like the span of 30 seconds, it was really scary. Wow. Yeah. So I read a post that you wrote about um, this process of losing your faith. Um, which I thought was really powerful. And one thing that you mentioned in that post was that you felt like previously um, that you were truly open to other views um, and open to being wrong, but then only when you sort of like ultimately ended up sort of leaving your faith and, you know, like overhauling your belief system, I guess, um, you realized that you actually were open to being wrong. And And I was wondering, so like, I think that probably many of us are in this like first scenario where we think that we are open to being wrong, but we aren't really. Um, do you, 
do you know, like, do you have a way for people to know when they're in that category, when they're fooling themselves about, about like their openness to being wrong? I think it's hard. Like what, one question is like, if you changed your mind about the thing and then you were open about it, would your social life continue? Like how many practical hits uh-huh. would your life take? And if it would take a lot of practical hits, <clears throat> then there's like, it's an increased chance. I'm not saying necessarily that you're not open to being around, but it's like mm-hmm. definitely an increased chance. Um, and there's also like the sense of like, if you can imagine being that person who believes the opposite thing and like paying careful attention to your body, like, do you feel like disgust or fear or horror? Like, are there any sort of like emotional, like, oh shit, like I can't be that thing or else blank. Right. Cause like, if it's just, if, if there's a mind change that you don't mind, if somebody was like, Hey, by the way, that tree outside your house that you thought was an apple tree is actually a pear tree. Like, I don't have a sense of horror at all when I think about changing my mind about that. But there's definitely, even now, I still have lots of beliefs that trigger that sense of horror. And I, those are things that's like a really strong warning sign that, that maybe, maybe you're not believing this because you're curious about the truth. You're believing it because, uh, you like it, it's supporting some sort of beliefs about yourself that make you feel valuable to have this current belief system. Yeah. Like I've been trying to do this, like, I don't know, cognitive empathy where I'm like, what must it feel like to be in a situation where you all of a sudden completely change your like way of looking at the world in a way that's going to be like, just upend your life. Right. So if like tomorrow I was like, I'm actually an ardent Trump supporter that would be, I mean, I mean, that's as close as I could get to it, right? Like, it's just like, yeah, I would lose friends and I better be quiet about that or else like I might be in professional trouble, right? So there are things that are just like, I think for me, sort of off limits that I, you know, I'm pretty sure that's wrong. But like, if I became convinced that that was right, that would not be good just on a practical level. So maybe Trump's the good guy. I don't know. Wow. <laughs> maybe we should think about that more. That's the conclusion. <laughs> to be clear, I'm not a, currently a Trump supporter, but Alexa's making a dubious, <laughs> a dubious face. Yeah, exactly. That's right. You feel this like uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, and often, you know, that's fine. Um, it's just like, how do you know? How do you know what the stuff that you're sort of intuitively rejecting? Okay, I have a question about that too, because in the same post where you talk about um, losing your faith, you say um, that, quote, the existence of other heretical yet devout religions served as a huge constant warning light to me in the back of my mind. And I feared that whatever fooled them might be fooling me now. Um, and so I was wondering, like, do you do you have that feeling about anything that you believe now? So is there anything that you think might be fooling you? Um, I think a lot less so now. Uh, because with religion, there was like, it's very binary. Like either you're saved and going to heaven or you're not. And like now different belief systems from my own feel like they're more like exist on many kinds of spectrums, both like individually within the t- belief systems, but also like how how much I disagree with each one. Uh, and so it's it's like less clear to me, but I do have that thing now, like somebody else can believe this so devoutly. What does that mean for me? Like, what am I not seeing about that? Uh, I think that's good. I think it's really good to have that warning side, but I, I absolutely do have that. So Alexa, I don't know where you're at, but my, my beer ran out. Should we take a break? Can stop you from saying all the things in life you'd like to. So if there's something you'd like to try, if there's something you'd like to try. 
Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod, where you can at mention or DM us. If you'd rather email, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com, and that will go to me and Alexa and Mickey as well. Finally, our website is fourbeers.com, and you can listen to any of our episodes there and drop us a note as well if you like. If you're enjoying the show, please take a sec to review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. It just helps other people discover the show. Alexa, anything you want to throw in there? Nope, that sounds good. Has your students' podcast gotten like a massive bump since we hyped them the last I haven't checked, but I assume so. I mean, how could they not with our endorsement? I I hope their server can handle the load. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so beer round two. I just want to point out to all the haters out there that I am drinking a real beer for the the second one. Let me find it. Um, So this is uh, L'Espace Public Beer de Cirque. It's a Goes IPA. It's got a little circus can. Alexa, what about you? I'm drinking the same beer. (laughs) (laughs) Ruining for the first time ever my unimpeachable record. Oh, man, you had like such a streak. (laughs) And now you're just going to throw it away. Terrible. I'm playing tennis with Megan after this, and she beats me on a good Uh-oh. day, so I can't be... Okay. Well, maybe the, maybe the alcohol will loosen you up a little. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Maybe. Never know. Um, Ayla, what's your drink situation? I'm still working on this cocktail, but it is a strong cocktail, so you have to give me some mercy. We appreciate that you are willing to play along at all. Uh, okay, so... I would like to get back into it. And this is actually going to be like probably a bigger topic because it's about your, I would say, independent research. Um, so you have, I don't exactly know what to call it, like uh, Independent Research Institute, which may just be you. Uh, it's not entirely clear. Um, but you are like actually doing research, right? Um, so you're focusing now on sexual fetishes, but you've studied other kind of social science topics as well. Uh, so uh, racism, consent, uh, a bunch of other interesting things. So I'm just curious, what is it like as an independent researcher? Like, first of all, is that how you think of yourself? Uh, it's probably a good phrase. It's like a little surreal or, or something. Like, I think researcher usually comes with a lot of connotations of like somebody who has been blessed with the mantle of authority, uh, which I have not. Uh, so it's like, I feel like I'm like kind of slipping into a room to a party I wasn't invited in, but like, I think I'm probably in the room. I guess like one whole like set of questions that I had was like, how do you think about yourself like in relation to the scientific literature? So like, let's say you're, you want to study thing X. Do you go and like read journal articles on thing X? Do you care what social scientists have said about thing X? Or are you just like, I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, and as much as possible, I'm going to avoid, you know, being tainted by the knowledge of like what what the status quo is. Mostly the latter. <laughs> I, it's it's mostly that I just like like doing the research, like the experience of making a survey, running it, and looking at the results is pleasurable to me. So I'm going to do it regardless of what is already published. Uh, and also, it's good to replicate things. Like, and also, I have like like a lot of published things. It's like what 
fucking question phrasings did you use? Like, tell me the damn survey because like all of that can, there's just like so much trust even that, that, that you have to have in the people who are running another survey or doing another study that I like doing it myself and knowing fully. Like I have like a really visceral hands-on understanding of like what the weaknesses are in what I'm doing and like what the strengths are and like what the criticisms are valid. When, or when I read other people's published work, like I don't, like I have to kind of like make faker guesses. Um, I like having like such like a strong grip on my data. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because one of the things we talk about a lot is like we would like to move the field towards more transparency, right? So like you read a published paper and along with that paper, you get the exact materials that they used, right? So you can download their survey and rerun it yourself if you want. You get their data, you get their analysis code so you can replicate all of their uh, results in the paper if you want. And that's just like not really our status quo yet, although we are going in that direction. And so it's interesting to hear somebody who's like more of an outsider say, well, that's a frustration that I have with kind of the literature as it is. Yeah. Do you make your um, your data or your questions um, openly available? Uh, some of it, yes. Um, I, I need to make the rest of it. I just like, like kind of haven't gone around to it. But you can get a full data set at least one full data set, maybe more on my website right now. Um, I'm also planning on publishing the full everything, everything that I have with my current, because I'm working on like a current uh, project, which is fucking massive. And I'm uh, once I'm done, like writing up all of the stuff, I'm going to make it all fully available. Forgive me for not sort of knowing exactly the mechanics of this. Do you get participants just because people are curious and they want to answer your questions? Or do you like incentivize people in some way? It depends on the survey. Um, I have never paid people to take my surveys before. Uh, if I say, hey, here's a survey, just take it. I usually get around one to 2000 responses. If I make it into a quiz where like I give people some sort of like analysis results at the end, I can get 15,000 to 20,000 responses. Amazing. That's really, um, that's cool for me to hear um, just from like a research method standpoint, because one thing that we're having more and more trouble with in our own lab is getting people to to actually engage with our studies. I mean, obviously, like they're usually longer than a couple of questions and they're not like uh, designed to be like, um, I guess they're not always designed to be inherently interesting to the people who are participating. But I think that's sort of a problem because um, because people clearly like we we include questions to uh, determine whether people are paying attention and like really engaged. And we just mm -hmm. have massive rates of people not being engaged and not paying attention. Um, and it makes me kind of sad, both because we get shitty data, but also because I feel like, oh, it would be nice if we were doing studies where people are like, oh, this is yeah. fun to do. I would like, I would do this even like if I wasn't being forced to or something. So it's kind of cool that a lot of what you're doing is like inherently interesting to people. And they're just, they're, they're doing it because either they just want to answer the question or they'd be really curious to see like what, how they do on your quiz or something like that. Yeah. It is genuinely fun, which I do like, uh, it is an ass load more work though. And like, usually you have to give people scoring based on previous info. So like for my current survey, um, I have a sample size of I think 21,000 right now. And the survey is around 300 questions long and takes around 40 minutes to complete. Uh, so this is like a shitload of data, but, uh, it, it was like super, super viral. Yeah. So one thing that I thought was really clever was, um, I think this might be the one that you're referring to, this uh, kink survey, is they give you feedback at the end to say, yeah. uh, how kinky are you compared to the, like, the closest fictional yeah. character 
in terms of kinkiness as rated by a previous group. So it might be like, you're about as kinky as people think Chewbacca is, <laughs> yeah. for example. And for some weird reason, that's super motivating. It's like, oh, I want to know. Like, even though it's kind of like, I don't know what to do with that information. I'm like, I don't, I don't really know Chewbacca. I guess right. he's sort of medium. Like you need, you need some kind of like anchors to compare people's responses to. So I guess like I can imagine that it wouldn't be that hard to get people to do a personality questionnaire, for instance, because I think people are inherently interested in that, but it's like not very interesting to hear like you scored 10 out of 17 on extroversion, right? It's like much more interesting to hear, like, how does that compare to other people? Or yeah, I guess it sounds like you're doing comparisons to characters. That's really cool. Yeah. Like I was thinking like, what is the kind of result that you would want to share with your friends? And then your friends see it and they're like, oh, fuck, I want to know my result. It has to be something like that. And something like visual. Like if you can have some sort of like visual or visceral thing that like taps into something that's already important to them in their daily life. uh, Also good. Like for example, fictional characters. This is sort of an like off the wall question, but like being successful at OnlyFans requires a lot of promotion. And do you think that there's some skills of like getting people to pay attention and do stuff that are sort of common between the two? Like, I mean, I just think it's a very clever way of thinking of like, what are we going to do that's going to make this a little more viral? Like, how are we going to get people to share this with their friends? And I wonder if there's like kind of a common skill set almost to this too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I do think like whatever made me good at OnlyFans, like also makes me good at getting large sample sizes, or maybe just my practice doing OnlyFans, like was what ended up helping me get good sample sizes. But there's definitely like the things that people find eye grabbing and attention grabbing. And usually it has to do with reflections on your own identity. People want to like feel uh, affirmation that they are the character that they think they are. And so if you can provide anything that validates that, whether it be like sex or survey results, uh, then then you can get a lot of engagement. Yeah. So we usually just pay people like, you know, 50 cents and that your, your, your unengaged subjects were, were paid, right? Yes. My unengaged subjects were paid or given course credit. Same idea. Yeah. I mean, undergrads are the worst because they just do not care at all. The, usually the paid subjects at least care enough to like not want to get their work rejected because it's bad for their reputation like on the platform Mm -hmm. so they have that motivation um but they are not typically i don't think intrinsically interested in the topic of your research which this is interesting because i when i was doing the the results i do think like it probably warps results somewhat like people are trying to answer according to what they want to get as opposed to what they are so this does like introduce some unreliability but i hadn't i didn't uh hadn't expected that like there would also be unreliability with people taking it for other reasons. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's such a trade-off, right? Like you are definitely, I mean, the the group of people who are willing to, for free, do a 40-minute survey about their sexual fetishes, um, you could expect those to be unusual folks in some ways, right? But then so are the folks who are willing to do a study for 50 cents, right? So it's like, which kind of unusualness do you want? And like, right, what kind of, I think it's just being careful about drawing conclusions and keeping in mind that these are not, you know, random samples of the U.S. population. That's true. So, this was a this study you mentioned. This was a huge amount of work. It looks like, and it seems like you worked really hard on the questionnaire itself, 
like refining the items, consulting with people, doing kind of think aloud protocols where you ask people to go through and tell you what they're thinking when they encounter each question. And is that something where you kind of looked at formal resources for that? Like, you know, how do I design a survey? Or is this just using your intuition and feedback from your friends and people you know? Uh, entirely the latter. I have like almost no uh, reference to like what people normally do, uh, except for like when I like read studies or something. But they don't usually go into that much detail about uh, like how they constructed it. It was mostly just, I've just done a lot of surveys at this point. And like I do a survey and I get the data and I'm like, oh shit, now I realize that, that this question is unreliable for this reason, or like I missed checking this, which would have helped me validate that other thing. And so just like that, like over and over and over again, like has given me a, like a basically a really intuitive sense of like the things that I need to pay really careful attention to and what I don't. Um yeah, so it's like sort of like I figured it out from the ground up, I think. It sounds like you do some um like you're trying to learn some statistical uh, techniques and things like that. Like, do you do any sort of like formal training in this stuff? No, I've had, uh, people who seem to be very good at statistics help tutor me before. I've had like two people that I did, uh, like lessons with. Okay. Um, which has helped a lot. I, I'm not great at statistics. Like I'm still looking for lessons with people. And then like, when I like get a data result, I'm like, how do I interpret this? And then I usually go and like, do like ask people who are really good at statistics to teach me. To how, how to understand that. Um, so it's usually like a case by case basis. And so it's still being patched together. Yeah. I, uh, followed on Twitter where you were talking about learning Python for statistical analyses. Um, and I thought that was like such a great series of tweets because it like sort of highlighted the things that like you sort of take for granted and you're literally like, no, there's a window and what do I type into it? Like, I don't, I don't know <laughs> what this is supposed to be. Right. And it, you know, the people who like know Python assume you're running an IDE and they're like, why? I don't even understand where you're at. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm super, I, first of all, really impressed, but also kind of like daunted by the idea of like just starting from scratch and like teaching yourself this from basically zero. Yeah, well, I'm very fortunate. Like, I have a lot of people. So, like, I made a Telegram chat. It was like, if you want to help teach me Python, join this chat. It was very chaotic, but it got me through the first couple of weeks, which was like the crunch time. Like, now I feel like I'm at a point where I can, I know the questions to Google, or like, if I have a really specific thing, I can figure it out on my own. But for the first couple of weeks, it was really valuable to have a bunch of people like yelling at me different answers in a chat. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was, I tried to avoid learning Python for so long. I was using like spreadsheets and like hacking together, like my personal, I had a friend like build me, uh, programs in Google Sheets. Cause I'm like, I don't want to learn Python, but with this, this data set that I have now, it's just, it, sheets won't load it. So I have to learn Python. So what, what prompted you to do this, um, like more ambitious project? I got funded. And, and I also just, I had like a bunch of, well, it, it wasn't originally ambitious. I was like, okay, I have a whole bunch of different questions about fetishes. I'm like, well, I'll pick one of them and then study that thing. But then like, as I tried to like construct a survey to ask about this question, I was like, well, it would be more efficient if I just put in a couple more questions about this. And I was like, well, then I want to cross check that. And it's just like, it spiraled out of control. Uh, and people were telling me, no, you can't, you can't test everything at once. But I did, I tested everything at once. I tested so many things. Uh, it's like still a broad survey. Like I mean it to be sort of like a surface level check over a whole bunch of different hypotheses to like give me ideas about what to explore in greater depth in my next couple rounds. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that I did it, but it's still very big. 
And okay, so in general, I mean, throughout our conversation, it's become very clear and maybe just from from like looking at your website and reading your posts and things like that, um, that you are like very curious and open minded. Um, so do you would you say that you have um, like an agenda with your research? Are you hoping to find anything in particular or are you just like, I just want to know everything there is to know about what people have to say about fetishes? I think there are some things that if I found it would make me feel bad which might be an agenda. Okay. Like sometimes I can feel myself. I'm like checking a correlation on the spreadsheet. I'm like, please don't be that. Please don't be that. And okay. then it like is or isn't. <laughs> uh, and something is like, I guess I'm like pretty sex positive. I think it's porn is good. And I'm like, I would be sad to find out like porn use correlates with rape in a way that's like not confounded by anything easy. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, so mostly stuff like that, but most of the other stuff, I don't think I have a strong agenda. It's mostly just what causes. And I'm curious about what causes fetishes. What are like childhood things, experiences, attitudes, philosophies that might correlate with like what arises you sexually? Um, and I don't have like strong agendas with this at all. Are you worried about testing that sort of stuff via self-report? So in other words, if I'm into something now, my memory of what my childhood was like might change to fit kind of a theory that I have, like that people might not be especially reliable at telling you what happened to them as kids. Yes, but like we'd have to, uh, uh, I think this is like a mild concern, but not a very large one for me. Like, for example, like, like would, uh, does sexual abuse correlate with being into BDSM? Like sexual abuse as a child correlate to be like, like, is this an example of something that you would consider to be just checking before I could do Exactly. Yep. Right. So, so what I asked, like, is like at the beginning of the survey, I just asked like, were you sexually abused as a child? Uh, and if so, how severely? Um, and then later on in the survey, I ask like, are you into any of these like check level ones? So then if you check it, you get more questions. Um, and so they are like separated in the survey, which hopefully makes people like, I don't ask association questions. Like I don't ask like, do you think BDSM caused uh, childhood sexual assault? And again, this is not like totally ignoring, like, like it is still a concern. Like it's possible that people like developed a narrative in their head, like, oh, I'm into BDSM. This like increases their, like the importance of their childhood sexual assault in their minds. Um, stuff like that. But I, I'm like, like I, I might, I, I would be shocked if that effect was very strong, which, by the way, it isn't. It's not correlated. There's no correlation in my data. No, I mean, so like, like there, there is like there are correlate. There's nothing like over like point one two or something or point one. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Like with this big a data set, often one problem is that if you're using like a P less than 0.05 threshold, basically like all relationships are significant. So how are you thinking about, you know, what's a meaningfully sized effect, right? Are you saying like, oh, if it's an R less than, I don't know, 0.2, I don't care about it. Um, how are you thinking about that? So part of the reason why hacking is like bad is because you're giving like selected results. If I give all results, then I don't have to worry about this, right? Like I give all results and say some, probably like some percentage of these are probably going to be inaccurate, especially if it's like, below a certain R. Um, this is what I'm intending to do. I'm intending to also report nulls. Uh, but also, uh, I think I would have switched to odds, ra odds ratios, which I've been doing for previous ones, which seems to me to be a little bit better than p-values. Um, and odds ratios, uh, like you still get like that one in whatever chance that the thing that you're getting is like by happenstance or whatever. Uh, but it like it, it still seems important to include because you can like uh, generalize across other surveys. Like if somebody else does it and gets an odd ratio, you can like multiply it or something to get like the the collective chance that both of these surveys arrived on it, which is not something you can do with p p values. Um, this is something that like I do not fully deeply understand. I understand like enough that like it's informing my choices. Um, I'm still uh, learning about it quite a lot. 
but but at this point like but plus like the the art like my sample size is like eighteen thousand for men for example um i think like the the valid p value is like like really really tiny and then if you just like multiply it because like the thing that i do is like multiply it by the amount of questions that i asked by or that i'm checking um which as far as i understand is kind of like a hacky way of like adjusting uh and i think i I haven't actually done it yet but i think it's probably fine i don't know if i'm making sense right now i'm kind of like rambling yeah no i i don't know this likelihood ratio approach at all and i actually this is sort of an interesting example of like you get brought up in a certain kind of disciplinary norm so like we know p values and like base factors and so i don't even know what this likelihood ratio thing is i guess like my question is more about the interpretation, right? So forget about statistical significance for a minute. Like, what do you, for your interpretation of it, what do you consider to be like in a relationship big enough to care about? Like, you might say an R of 0.1, like, I'll put it out there. Like, I'm going to give the giant correlation matrix of everything, but I'm not going to bother trying to interpret it because it seems too small to worry about. And it seems like with a big data set that like often that's a problem. Like a priori, you want some idea of like, what is the size of effect that I'm going to care about in terms of like calling it theoretically meaningful rather than statistically significant? Uh, yeah, there's like, uh, like, like assuming everything is statistically significant for a second. Um, like we kind of like have intuitions about like what R's mean what, like what, but correlation strikes means what. For me, I start to like vaguely pay attention to things around 0.12. It's like my just it's like there's I have no like clear reason for it. It's just after staring at a ton of correlations over the years, like that's around the thing. And like between two to three is like interesting, and I think three above is really exciting. Um excuse me. Uh but you can also like get get vibes from like looking at things that you like sort of know correlate already in real life. Like for example, in my data set, uh like being sexually assaulted as a child and being sexually assaulted as adults is like 0.38 or something. Uh, and so we already have like kind of a sense of like what that means. Um, and so you can like, you lose these things to like ping, uh, like, uh, what do you call it? Like shelling points of intuitions, uh, to sort of like guide, like know how to map everything else. You mentioned like, you don't have to worry about P hacking if you're, if you're just like giving people all of the results. So how are you doing that exactly? Uh, so, so one, uh, well, basically like listing all of the things that don't correlate. Um, so I haven't like published a ton about what I've found so far. I'm still like planning on it. It may end up being a book. I'm not sure. So one is just like publishing the raw correlation sheets. So you can check like all the things that don't. And mostly what I would like to do is just like publish all the questions that I asked and then be like, here are the ones that like I found all the rest don't correlate at all. So that way people just like sort of know like all the things that I tested that are null. Also, I'm not sure if I'm using the correct terminology here. Yeah. I mean, I think I get the, I get the idea. Um, yeah, I asked because that, um, that, that seems like it might be even more complicated than it initially seems. So for instance, like people don't typically, uh, take that approach in papers because usually there's, um, if you were to publish basically like every, um, every way of analyzing your data or it's, or it's just a lot of effort, right? So one thing that people sometimes will do is like a specification curve, which is, I think a relatively new, um, statistical development where basically for a given research question, they will run the analysis in every possible way you could imagine doing it. Right. So let's say you ask three questions about people's like interest in BDSM, right? You could 
you could analyze one of them. You could analyze the second, the third, you could analyze some combination of them. Um, and so a specification curve would show you all of those things. So I was kind of wondering just like logistically, like, are you, are you running like all combinations or is this like, just like one big correlation table? And then it also becomes challenging when, um, you decide how to talk about those things because usually there's some selection involved in that, right? Like, so, um, you know, maybe you're like choosing to talk about the things that are significant. Um, but then that, that takes up way more of your text narrative than the things that don't. And so they, they end up getting emphasized more. So just like the, the idea of, um, showing people everything is, um, is more challenging, I think, than it initially seems. Yeah, this is something that uh, I might end up running into, like learning about, like most of the stuff that I've published already is like, it's small enough that it hasn't been very hard. Um, But it's Uh possible, you you might be right, like, I might like start to try and write this shit up and be like, ah, shit, like Alexa was had some foreboding stuff going on here. Uh, yeah, like very possible. Uh, like my anticipation is that like I'll probably like I need to check the data to find out what my threshold is given the amount of like questions that I'm checking for, and then like I can pick like some R that like crosses like the p value threshold or something. Uh, like mm-hmm. I, I just haven't done that yet because like I haven't done like a big write up about the correlations yet. Um, but like likely I'm going to end up doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm more asked because I think that when people are writing papers, um, they have all of these like academic incentives that I feel like you, um, you seem to not have as much. So, you know, people like want their results to be significant and they want them to be like surprising and novel, um, because those are the things that are more likely to get published. And so I was sort of curious, like, okay, what does it look like when somebody who is just like really, um, like kind of agnostic about the results tries to publish everything. Like, I think that that's kind of like a cool mindset to learn from. Well, n- no correlations are also really interesting and novel to uh, maybe, maybe I'm not thinking about this correctly. I don't know. Like, uh, so maybe I'm confused, but, but like a lack of correlation seems like really cool because like a lot of people have preconceived ideas yeah. about correlations in this field already. So to me, like all of them seem like kind of equally important. Like turns out there is a correlation here and not here. It's like, ah, shit. Like no correlation between childhood sexual abuse and BDSM preference. I did not expect that. I thought that absolutely there was going to be. That's interesting and novel to me. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And like with a sample that big, you can be pretty confident that if a correlation, you know, if you have a correlation of 0.02 or whatever, that the confidence interval around that is going to be pretty tight. Yeah. Right. So... So, I mean, that's a, that's an advantage of having this enormous sample is that the nulls actually are interesting. If you ask mm-hmm. like 50 people and you're like, oh, yeah. no significant correlation, it's like, well, yeah, maybe it's just a power issue. I do think it's interesting, like when you were talking about your intuitions about what kind of size of correlation is meaningful, mm-hmm. like they map very closely to mine. Actually. Really? Like, so I'm like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like 0.1 to 0.2, maybe 0.2, okay, greater than 0.3. I'm like, oh yeah, that's something. Yeah. Right? So it's like speaks to just like, you have this practical experience of like looking at enough data and you kind of like realize what's plausible, right? Like what you normally see, what you what's kind of unusually big. And in fact, like people who have faked data have sometimes been caught because they just make these effects too big. Mm. And anybody who knows the area is like, oh, a correlation can't be like 0.8 there, right? So it's actually like something that I don't think people talk about enough is like getting an intuition for like what size effects are reasonable. That's really cool to hear. I'm glad to hear that like externally validated or something. It's also really cool because I feel like they're 
lower than what, let's say like 10 years ago, our field considers to be like medium to large effects, um, which was, I think, because of um, effects being inflated by publication bias and things like that. So it's like people might have scoffed at like a correlation of 0.25, but not anymore because we're getting a more realistic sense of you know, what are actually real effects and they're not being as inflated by like small samples and P hacking. Right. Like if you pass everything through the publication bias filter, then you're like, Oh, 0.25 doesn't seem that common. Right. But if you just look at a lot of data, you're like, Oh yeah. 0.25 is for like a social science question. Like it's pretty good. Yeah. Very exciting. A question that I have is, um, so looking at the sort of range of your life experiences, um, it seems that you are really interested in sort of experimenting and like trying new things. And, um, you, your life has sort of taken a lot of turns. Um, and I was wondering, uh, if there are, uh, forms of, I guess, experimentation that seem like scary or intimidating to you that you're like, okay, that's too far. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go down that road. I don't like physical discomfort that much. Like most of it, uh, like, like I like traveling, but not enough to do a lot of it. Like you'd think maybe with my disposition, I would have gone backpacking solo somewhere. Uh, but I don't, uh-huh. I don't like sleeping, you know, the cold or on hard things or, uh, you know, having sun on me. So probably a lot of that, like, I like being inside. I think most of my risk taking is you're, you're saying you you don't like this being, is like cracking. You don't up. like being outdoors. It's like, <laughs> Oh no, the sun <laughs> or else alternatively, the sun goes away and it's cold. Neither of those are good. I know. The sun is really terrible. It makes me feel bad. Some people report that the sun is great, but I don't like it. Yeah, I also appreciate your willingness to admit not liking lying on the ground. I mean, so many people pretend that they like that, but I think they're all lying. Didn't you think, because I was totally chill with lying on the ground until I turned like 28 or something, and then I was like, done. Never again. (laughs) Um, Wait, so what was the question, though? Self-experimentation? Yeah, right. are there things that are like you know you're you you find too like scary or intimidating? You, you're not interested in going down that road. Yeah, because I noticed like you're willing to experiment with like I'm gonna do a lot of acid for a year, or I'm going to try to get into this really intense relationship with the person who scored the best on my date me survey, right? So like to me that's like indicates a pretty radical willingness to like experiment with your life. Yeah, I think I'm like pretty risk tolerant. Like I don't mind it when bad things happen to me, and which really opens the door to a lot of things again like i think this is like not due to any particular like coolness of myself it's like some something about my brain construction um so yeah i'm pretty pretty chill doing a lot of weird stuff but like definitely not like discomfort i don't like you put me in a place with like bugs in it and i'm just not like people who are like hiking on tinder and like holding a fish you know whatever that fucking meme is like i cannot (laughs) uh not gonna radically self-experiment with that did you notice a lot of people holding up fish on the dating apps, Alexa? Oh yeah, those are that's real. I think that there I would guess that there's an even higher rate of that in Alabama actually. Oh no, I'm sorry. Does that signal like a love of the outdoors or I will provide you with fish like you're never you'll never go hungry while we're dating? Like what is the intended message? So I want to like hate on that. I mean, like it's such a um like a cliche at this point. Um but I will say that like I've tried to go fishing like twice in Alabama and I have not caught any fish. And I think if I caught a fish that was like this big, I would be like, 
I'm going to take a picture of this and show <laughs> everyone I know. And I think that they should think that I'm a better mate because of this. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like it's an accomplishment. I've never caught a fish in my life, you know? So if I did, I think I'd probably want to boast about it. Yeah, I also think that there's like a pretty big gender difference. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, when it's like women holding up fish, it's like, oh, maybe you're sort of like making fun of the trope or... Um, or maybe you just caught a fish and you were like, I'm going to show everyone. But it feels slightly more endearing. I mean, I share that intuition, but it is weird, right? The women get the benefit of the doubt that they're being subversive and the men are just like, oh, you tool on your fish. Yep. <laughs> I do like the ex- I do. I do not want to not shame the expression. Like if the thing that like Russell through Jamie's is, or no, that's the opposite of Russell and Russell and Jamie's annoying. It's the thing that like, like gets your goat. Wait, no, that's the opposite. Uh, turns your crank. Turns your crank. Thank you. Why are so many expressions about being annoyed? I am the thing that turns your crank is holding a fish on Tinder. Then fuck, go for it. It's just, <laughs> I'm just not going to go fishing with you. Is all. So when you like agreed to date this person who got the highest score on your on your survey, did you like filter out the the fishers and the campers? One of the questions on my survey was something about I forget exactly what it was. Something about the outdoors. I asked people to answer questions that were like agree disagree about things that they value in a partner. Like it is important to me that my partner blank. And one of them was uh, like enjoys the outdoors. And so people scored high on that, that they were negatively penalized. Amazing. That's great. Um, Okay. I feel like we've taken up enough of your time. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. This has been super fun. Uh, Anything that you want to plug to our vast audience before we go? Uh, I don't know. I mean, if you want to, I'll be publishing the results that I'm finding on my blog on knowingless.com or rather it's like ayla.substack.com. I mean, it's linked on my blog, the knowing less. Um, but yeah, subscribe to my Substack if you want to see more stuff. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much. I, I don't often get asked to interview about uh, like the research stuff. Usually it's about like, so what is your weirdest sexual experience when you're being a prostitute or something, which is like mm-hmm. fine. Uh, but it's, it's like very, very common. And this is like, I'm, it's like a personal passion of mine. So I'm really excited to be able to talk about it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming.